Amen. Well, let's turn, if you will, to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. And as you're turning there, I draw your attention to verses 18 through 29. This would be the remainder of chapter of chapter 2. As we look at the letter to the church of Thyatira. Now, before we get into our study this evening, it's good always to review a little bit about the letters that Jesus has written and is presenting to us, as we have over the past few weeks. The letter to the church of Ephesus was a letter to a loveless church, a, a church that actually began strong, uh, a church that uh, began with, with great works and great organization, but they left their first love, and therefore their, their end was weaker than their beginning. And then we met with the church of Smyrna, the, the persecuted church, the church that was uh, uh, facing great trials, and, and that church was encouraged just to stay faithful uh, as, as the Lord was, was blessing them and commending them because it had no bad thing to say about the church of Smyrna. It was the persecuted church. And the last time we dealt with the church of Pergamos, and that was the church of Compromise. And, and from Ephesus to Pergamos, and then today with Thyatira, we see a, a kind of a progression, but not a good progression, one that's kind of going downhill. After you compromise, of course, then the next thing is that you find yourself corrupted. And so we're dealing with the corrupt church in Thyatira, and that's where we are today. So let's begin reading this passage, verses 18 through 29, and I put these verses up individually so that we can concentrate and focus our attention on these verses. It says, And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who has his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, or love, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel. Now that means that you tolerate this woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space or time to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searches the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put you, I will put upon you no other burden, but that which you have already hold fast 
till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. And I will give him the morning star. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Some years ago, as uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse once pointed out, musicians in England noted that errand boys in a certain part of London all whistled out of tune as they went about their work. It was talked about and someone suggested that it was because the bells of Westminster Abbey were slightly out of tune. The bells were out of tune and so everything that the errand boys heard was out of tune and therefore when they whistled, they whistled out of tune. Something had gone wrong with those chimes and they were discordant. The boys didn't know there was anything wrong with the peals of the bells and quite unconsciously they just copied their pitch. So we tend to copy the people with whom we associate. We borrow thoughts from the books we read and programs to where we listen almost without knowing it. But consider this, that God has given us His Word, which is the absolute pitch of life and living. It is the absolute pitch. Now, if you know music at all, you realize that absolute pitch, is, is, it, doesn't, it doesn't go out of tune. And the Word of God never goes out of tune. It's always in tune. And if we learn to sing by it, we shall easily detect the falls in all the music of this world. So as we study the letter that Jesus wrote to the church in Thyatira, that is the thought that brings us to calling this church the corrupt church. A corruption had infected the people by a woman they called Jezebel. I won't say that that was her name, but they called her a Jezebel, as well as the leadership of the church. But now the tune that they were whistling in the church was well off the mark, going against all that Jesus stood for, all that the Word of God stood for. And so let's consider and study the longest of the letters that Jesus wrote to the churches of Asia Minor, the letter to the church of Thyatira. And again, I want you to keep in mind the seven key elements or principles that are brought out in most of the letters. For example, uh, we start off with the destination and salutation. And then there is the title and the description which we see of Christ's identification to the church. And then there's the commendation. If there's anything good in the church, Jesus is going to comment on it. And so that's what he does. He, sp he speaks of the condition of the church. And then, of course, there is the rebuke, which is the condemnation. Uh, this I have against you, and then he brings that up. Uh, the exhortation, which we call the promised or the threatened coming. 
And then there is a warning given, which is an admonition to heed. And it closes out with a promised blessing. The church of Thyatira has all of these seven key elements uh, in it. So we begin with the destination and the salutation. And that's verse 18. And you'll notice the bold part is the destination and salutation. Unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write. Now, of course, he's, Jesus is telling John, write this down and send this letter to this church in Thyatira. Well, the city of Thyatira was, was the smallest and the least important of the seven cities to which Jesus wrote. In essence, it was a frontier town. That doesn't mean they had cowboys there, just means that they were just kind of out there by itself in between all of these other bigger towns. It was located to some 45 miles southeast of Pergamos, and it was situated in a long valley between Pergamos and Sardis on the Lycus River. There's a couple of maps here to kind of give us a little bit of an indication of where it is. We might want to turn these lights down just a little bit so everybody can see it. But there's Thyatira right between Pergamum and Sardis. And if you're looking at this one, there's Thyatira in between Pergamus and, Thy- uh, and Sardis. And then a, a little bit uh, clearer uh, picture there you see of Sardis, or I'm sorry, of, of uh, Thyatira between uh, Pergamum and Sardis, okay? That's the valley there, and that's the river Lycus. Okay, so you, you got, got an idea of where it is there in Asia Minor. Um, it had no defensible surroundings and where, where it sat. It, it, it was pretty much uh, open to a lot of uh, other armies because of its distance from the other cities. Its citizens could only hope to hold off any enemy long enough until the army from Pergamos could come to their defense. So, interestingly enough, uh, they were hoping and waiting for the cavalry to come if they ever had any problems. So that's why it was another reason it was called a frontier town. Uh, But interestingly enough, the church in Thyatira knew what it was to hope in one who could see all the circumstances and who could trample all enemies underfoot. It was indeed a church, as we'll learn in just a moment, it was a church that knew what it was to hold fast. So they're in a city that needed to learn how to hold fast if there was any troubles against it. And maybe the city wasn't too strong or wasn't too powerful, but it had a strong commercial center with many trade guilds. And that's what it was known for. It was known as a, as a city uh, of merchants. Uh, as well as a city of trade guilds, which today we call unions. And they had these unions very, very uh, uh, prominent in these cities. And these trade guilds, as I said, were like the unions of today, with one big exception. Each one of these trade guilds had associated with them a specific god to worship. Each one of the trade guilds had a god that they worshipped depending on whatever it was that you did or whatever, whatever uh, trade that you had, they had a god, and that's the god that they all worshipped. So their meetings would include a time of feasting and a time of festivals. They would eat meat sacrificed to these gods. And many times, the worship of these gods would include sexual activity. That was all a part of their religion. Thus, you can see the difficulty of the believer in Jesus Christ and the difficulty for a believer in Jesus Christ to try and to practice his trade in this city. If they worship these gods, 
then their relationship with the Lord would be compromised. If they refused to worship these gods, they would lose their jobs. This was one of the problems that the believers were up against in Thyatira. Now, the city itself was also known for the dyeing of cloth. And most famous, it was in particular most noted for and famous for its purple cloth. That purple color that was used was actually processed and, 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 and uh, developed there in Thyatira. You know, when Paul first arrived in Philippi in Acts chapter 16, he went to a place of prayer by the riverside where he met a woman named Lydia. And we're told in Acts 16 verse 14 that a certain woman named Lydia, seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us. So that lets us know that here was a woman, her name was Lydia, and she was, as, as we read on a little bit here, we won't read on today, but, but she was very wealthy, uh, prosperous lady, because she sold this uh, cloth or this clothing of purple. And uh, her heart uh, was open to the Lord. It, it tells us that she attended unto the things which are spoken of, of Paul. And there are those who have suggested that the church in Thyatira may have been started by this woman named Lydia, this merchant woman. And how ironic that what good may have begun by this woman, Lydia, would risk being destroyed by another woman who is going to be called Jezebel, as we shall see soon enough. But that's a little bit of the history in the background of, of Thyatira. Now... Jesus, in that same verse, verse 18, now gives us his title and description. It says, These things saith the Son of God, who has his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. Now, Jesus clearly calls himself the Son of God in contrast to the principal deity of Thyatira. And the principal deity of Thyatira was Apollo, who was considered the sun god and worshipped under the surname Tyrimnus. Now the sun god, I say S-U-N, like the sun that comes up every morning. And so Jesus was, ex- was establishing his deity, establishing his sovereignty, establishing his authority as the sun, S-O-N of God, as opposed to the sun, S-U-N, God who was Apollo. And while the description of Jesus in chapter 1, if you go back and you read it, it is mentioned as, as the title is given to him as the Son of Man. And there is a distinction. Because the Son of Man is mentioned there in chapter 1. Because it speaks of Jesus' humility. It speaks of his compassion and his tenderheartedness towards the church. Yet, when we see the description of Jesus there, we also see it being added to all of these churches, certain parts of it, as, as each church needs to hear of certain parts of that uh, uh, deity, or I should say of, of his description. Uh, we know his tenderheartedness, his mercy toward the church, but when we get to the churches that he has to speak to and show himself strong, he is the Son of God. It is the deity that matters here in his description. Because as the Son of God, He is coming in judgment against those in the church that have rejected Him. The Son of Man 
is Him coming to bring salvation to man. As the Son of God, He will come in, in judgment. And so His eyes are described like a flame, which speak of Jesus coming as the one who is examining the ways of this church. And His feet like fine brass, which again speaks of judgment. Bronze or brass in the Scriptures usually has some connection to judgment. Think about the times that brass and bronze are mentioned in the making of all of the uh, uh, furniture and, and, and all of the uh, accessories of the tabernacle as well as the temple. Well, it was almost always used for sacrifice, which was having to do with judgment, the judgment of sin, the judgment uh, that needed to, you know, to, to come for the people to be able to, to know that their God was forgiving them and cleansing them of, of these things. So brass is, uh, is important in that sense. His feet were like fine brass, does speak of judgment, but it also emphasizes something else. It, it emphasizes his purity and his steadfastness. His purity, because that brass, to, to be made into the vessels that were ne- necessary in the temple, uh, it had to endure some very, very, very hot fire. And then, of course, beaten into, into, into shape. But brass, and the bronze or brass that was used, was considered to be one of the strongest materials of the time. So it was strong, it was steadfast, and it was, in essence, immovable. And in verse 15 of chapter 1, it says, His feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and His voice is on of many waters, but as, it, as burned in a furnace, brings purity and steadfastness. It won't have that strength unless it is beaten properly in that furnace. So we have to realize the necessity for that. The fire of the furnace did two things. It's burning purified brass in the process also made it strong and unmovable. Therefore, the Lord Jesus is able to step down hard upon all seductive teaching and all seductive compromise. And folks, all that teaching compromises all around us today. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to be listening to it and listening for it. Not listening, not to it, but if we hear it, we need to recognize it as that. Because it's so easy nowadays. You know, we turn on TV, we can listen to every, anybody on TV, and we just say, well, he got a Bible in his hand. That doesn't mean anything, folks. What matters is what he says, or what she says, sometimes. And a lot of times what they say isn't what the Word of God is saying. We have to be discerning. Jesus is going to come. He's going to crush this seductive teaching and compromise. He rules and He judges. Uh, you know, uh, He rules and judges. His feet shall crush all those who compromise with the world. In addition, His feet shall crush all false teachers of compromise. And the reason is clear. Jesus and Jesus alone is the true spokesman and messenger of God the Father. Jesus and Jesus alone. All others are false. Take note that Jezebel was claiming to be what? A prophetess. She was claiming to be a prophetess. She was claiming to be a spokesperson and a messenger of God. Now, we get into the commendation. 
And that's verse 19. It says, I know thy works. God, Jesus is saying to this church, I know thy works. Remember what we said last week of Pergamos. I know thy works. I know you. I've been there. I've been through the struggles you're going through. I've gone through every struggle you've ever been through except without sin. So I know your works. I know what you go through. And, and I know your charity. I know, I know your love. I know your deep giving. I know your service. And I know your faith, your trust in me. I know your patience. I mean, this sounds really good, doesn't it? And I know thy works. And listen to this. He says, I know thy works in the last to be more than the first. That's a tremendous statement. If we were to just stop here, we'd say, this is a fantastic church. You see, for those who were saved in this corrupt church, the Lord had the following commendation for them. The work they were doing was done out of the proper motivation. It was done out of love. We can't say that about Ephesus. Maybe when they first started, we could. But by the time Jesus is writing them a letter in Ephesus, what is he saying? You've left your first love. You started strong, you're ending very weak. On the other hand, the church in Thyatira was getting stronger. They ministered to those in need. They were able to endure and to press under, under heavy pressure. They were able to touch many lives in the work that they did. And to their credit, they did not rest upon their past accomplishments, but they pushed on doing more and more work. In fact, they were constantly improving in their works and service because it says, in other words, that their last works were greater than their first. The last works were greater than the first. That should be a testimony of every church. That our last works are better than our first or are greater than our first. Our accomplishments are greater. We are improving as we go as a church. Every church should improve in that manner. I love the words of Paul to the Philippian church when he says, In this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Because that is the root of all of our work. That is the root of all of our service. That is the root of everything that we do as believers in Jesus Christ. We must begin with the love of God and the love of Christ and the love for others. And he says, I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. He's already told them that they're a good, a loving church. He says, but I want you to abound more and more. He does the same with Thessal- the, 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 the Thessalonian church. That's a hard thing to say. If I've been the Thessalonians, a lot of letters in that word. And he does it, but he does the same. He says, I want you to abound more. You're already there. You love, but I want you to abound more in it. You know, sometimes we get satisfied. We get to a point where we just kind of sit back on our, on our past achievements. Oh, you know, we, when we did this 10, 15 years ago, it was, man, I want to talk about 10 or 15 years ago. I want to talk about now and what we're going to do tomorrow for God and for Christ. That's what it's all about. And this church, in essence, was doing that. That you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. In other words, keep pussy, pushing on, pushing on, pushing on until you get to that place where when Christ comes, man, He's going to say, look, your last works were greater than your first. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, and to the glory and praise of God. I made reference in one of the studies this, 
this past weekend, I made a reference to the fact that sometimes, you know, we get started in January. We say, man, we're going to do all of this for the Lord. And we say, okay, man, you know, we're going to get really into it. And we're going to make all these resolutions. And we're going to read the Bible. We're going to tell people about it. I'm going to tell 10 people every day about Jesus, blah, blah, blah. And then by, by mid, uh, you know, by mid-February, uh, it's like five people. And then, you know, by April, it's three people. And it's, if, Lord, if I can even just see one person. And we get into December, you know, at the end of the year. So, oh, Lord. You know, Lord, lift me up. Give me started so in January I can make those resolutions again. You know, and do that. You know, but but that's not but that's not the the attitude or the idea is that we need to press on from here, and our greater works are tomorrow, not yesterday. Our greater works are next week, not last week. That, that, because Christians, we're different than the world. The world can rest on its, you know, on, on its accomplishments. We, we have no accomplishments. They're all Christ's accomplishments. So isn't it better to say that tomorrow, Lord, we are going to, you know, with all of our heart, just be ready to do whatever you want us to do. It's tomorrow that matters. We want the fruits of righteousness tomorrow, which are by Jesus Christ in the glory of, and praise of God. So that, there's that church. The church of Thyatira had a good commendation. But now we come to... The condemnation and the rebuke. And this is hard and it's heavy. It says, notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee because thou sufferest or tolerate, you tolerate that woman Jezebel, which calls, calls, calls herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my, student, my, my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication. She repented not. So listen, despite all the good in in this church, and we have to admit, after reading that verse, verse 19, there was a lot of good in that church. But despite all the good in this church, there were significant problems. The focus of the corruption in the church of Thyatira was a woman that Jesus called Jezebel. Now this may or may not have been her real name. But it served as a title that clearly represented a self-styled prophetess. Please keep that in mind. A self-styled prophetess within the church after the pattern set by Jezebel, the Sidonian wife of King Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 16 through 21. And by the way, write those down. That's your homework. Read a little bit about her. And then in 2 Kings 9, 30 through 37. You know, within that First Kings area there, about 17, 18, 19 there, in that section, that's when we read about the prophets of Baal and, and Elijah standing against those prophets. Well, those were her prophets. Her name was, has a powerful association. I tell you, I don't hear too many people calling their, 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 their newborn daughter Jezebel anymore, do you? No. That just doesn't happen. I mean, it has a powerful association, even today. If we call somebody a Judas, what do we say? Oh, you know, he's a Judas, he's a betrayer. If we call somebody a Hitler, <laughs> we know what, his, what that association is. I hardly know anybody named Adolf. I know one guy named Adolf, you know, out of the millions of people I know. 
I only know one, you know. Adolf Hitler. Well, I don't know any Hitlers at all. I think every Hitler changed their name, you know, after the 40s. But you see the, you see the association, though. Uh, the utter wickedness, of course, you hear the name Hitler, and that's what it's associated with. Jezebel was one of the most evil characters of the Old Testament, who attempted to combine, and you have to understand, this is what this was about. She attempted to combine the worship of Israel with the worship of Baal or Baal. Together, Ahab and Jezebel, they were the dynamic duo, I'm sorry, the demonic duo. They were the demonic duo of the Hebrew Scriptures. Having killed the prophets of God while caring for the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. She was without a doubt the evil influence upon her husband and upon a nation. She was an evil influence in that respect. The Jezebel of Thyatira called herself a prophetess. But she was far from being a true prophetess. Nonetheless, the Christians there received her as one. They received her as a prophetess. And hence, the warning from Jesus. The Lord warned about this kind of deception even before his death. Before Jesus goes to the cross, in Matthew 24, verse 11, he says, Many false prophets shall arise and shall deceive many. Now the sin that she was introducing to the church was spiritual fornication and spiritual immorality. Just as King Ahab's wife introduced that into the northern kingdom of Israel. It was spiritual fornication, spiritual immorality. And the sin of this woman was leading the church into sin and saying that it was of the Lord. Now stop and think. This is of the Lord, she says. To combine. Now remember the history of Thyatira. Remember what it was about. You want to work? You need to have some way of, of you know, you, you want to come to church on Sunday, that's fine. But, you know, the rest of the week, you might have to do a little, little bow to whatever God, you know, your trade union serves. And sometimes you might just have to sit down and eat a little bit of that sacrificed idol meat. You see. This was a part of it. That's, that's, that's encouraging them to do what? To have this spiritual uh, immorality or spiritual fornication taking place. But what was the sin of the people? The sin of the people was listening to Jezebel. That was their sin. They were listening to this false prophet. And that is the rebuke to this church. The tolerating of this sin of spiritual immorality and idolatry. As Hosea 5 verse 4 says, it says, They do not direct their deeds toward turning to their God, for the spirit of harlotry is in their midst, and they do not know the Lord. So there were people then, I mean, if you, if you combine this thought in Hosea with what's happening in Thyatira, there were people that were there, but their, their minds and their hearts were not discerning to this deception, and they were following after Jezebel's, or this, this Jezebel's teaching, and they were believing it, and they were following into it because they didn't know the Lord. They really didn't know. 
And you have to understand this because you cannot be the bride of Christ and have an affair with the world. Which is in essence what she was encouraging them to do. I want you to consider, and and James makes a very strong comment here, and he's making it to the church, not making it just to anybody. He's making it in the church. And he says in James 4 verse 4, he says, let's see, where am I? Whoops, did I miss it? Okay. Turn to James 4 verse 4. It's not up here. It's in your Bible. I know it's in your Bible. So turn there. But there in James 4, 4 says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? I knew there was a verse somewhere that didn't get in here. I'm going to hunt it down and I just found it. It's right here. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity? What is enmity? Enmity is hostility. Enmity is hostility with God. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And that clearly speaks to those who are following after this Jezebel's teaching. There was a period of time in church history when the Bible itself... Now listen carefully, I want you to listen to me. There was a time in church history when the Bible itself was banned from the common people and taken out of their hands and left for the so-called spiritual leaders. Now, what the spiritual leaders did was to say, well, these people can't read anyway. We'll tell them what it says. So we don't even want them to be around close to it, especially those who could read. We'll tell you what it says. We'll interpret it for you. We'll tell you how we can build our own laws and our own ways about, about it. And, and you don't have to worry about it. There were churches that actually put a Bible under lock and key. Isn't that freeing? (laughs) The church was being led by so-called prophets who put their stamp of approval on all sorts of abominations and false doctrines while moving more and more away from the truth of God's Word. There was the selling of indulgences that that, uh, really spurred uh, Martin Luther to write those those theses, uh, you know, and, and nail them to that door. In that church. For those who stood against those abominations, listen. There were those who said, no. We need to stay faithful to the simple truths of the Word of God. And we need to know them. And we need to teach them. And we need to live them. Groups like the Huguenots and the Waldensians, who cried out to return to the simple faith of God's Word, they were being butchered. Whenever you have an opportunity, read the book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. Read some of the stories in there. People who stood for the Word of God and were killed by so-called Christians. Those were truly the dark ages. And there was a period of time that the church was like the churches of Pergamos and of Thyatira. They were compromising the Word and then they just corrupted the Word. And so now God gives the exhortation. Begins with this verse. It says, I gave her space or time to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. First of all, notice, I gave her time. I gave her space. I gave Jezebel the opportunity. 
You see that? A lot of times we, we kind of read over that and say, well, you know, it's the, 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 the church. No, no, he's speaking to her. I gave her space. Because if you go back to, if you, if you go back to, verse, uh, to verse 20, it's talking about her. The context is her. I gave her space to repent of her fornication and she repented not. The exhortation was repent. And again, if you'll notice, it was directed to Jezebel. God in His grace and in His mercy gave her time to repent of these abominations from this spiritual fornication and from the spiritual immorality. And yet she refused. She refused. All these false prophets and false teachers today it's very rare, very rare, if any of them w- would, would ever just come out and say, you know what, I've been fooling a lot of people, and I've come to realize I'm a false prophet. And I want to repent of my sins. And I want to start over with God and really, truly start a, be- a new life in relationship with Jesus Christ and start fresh. Has anybody ever heard anybody that's a big false prophet ever do that? I haven't. I would love to see that happen. But they are so bought into what they do. And the people are so, you know, they're just sold into this stuff. It's sad. Some people can come out of it, yes. But the leadership, that's, that's the thing. But do you see how the Lord is giving her an opportunity? Yet she repented not. That's a choice. She chose not to come out of this. She rejected the Holy Spirit. And this would certainly include those who would follow her. And the opportunity for them to repent is in, in this as well. I mean, there were those who had grown accustomed to the practices that she introduced. And they would not relent and they would not repent. And I think it's uh, wise for us to realize the words of Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12 when he said, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So if your feet are not planted upon the rock that is Jesus Christ, you will fall. If your feet are not planted upon the rock which is Jesus Christ, you will fall. What is necessary? is for people to humble themselves. It is necessary to humble oneself and to come before Him, before Jesus Christ, repenting of sins, and know that He will forgive our sins. First John 1 John 1.9 You know, I, I think this, this is a verse that, that we should really just carry with us daily. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our God is such a faithful God in that. He's such a merciful God. He's such a compassionate God. What a loving God we have. But back in Thyatira, as, as, as a whole, the church tolerated... And allowed this Jezebel to deceive some of the church. You know, it didn't have to be a whole lot of people either. Because the Bible tells us that a little leaven can leaven the whole lump. Didn't have to be a whole bunch. Just enough 
And the whole church has to receive the letter from Jesus. And so as a whole, because of the toleration of this prophetess that was a false prophetess, the church needed to repent. And so came the warning. Revelation 2, verses 22 and 23. Behold, and this is the promised or threatened coming. Behold, I will cast her into a bed. And them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation. Those who followed her, in other words, into this, this deception. Except they repent of their deeds. So there's the opportunity for them to repent. And I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searches the reins and hearts. And I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Is the Lord trying to bring some fear into us? Yes. The fear of the Lord. But if we fear the Lord properly, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is our, is our wisdom and knowledge. It's our strength in, in, in many ways to deal with these kinds of deceptions. But he says, I will give unto everyone according, every one of you according to your works. He wants us to fear Him. He wants us to trust Him. He wants us to bow to Him. I mean, first of all, think about this. Uh, Jezebel's judgment was was to match her sin. She was to reap what she sowed. And again, Jesus is using this, this description, you know, as, as putting her in a bed and just, you know, all those that are doing that stuff with her, she's, you know, they're going to do that. But, but there's, that's the consequence. You're going to follow her and, and whatever she has sown, that is what you're going to reap. And, and, and then it mentions, you know, death, you know, of children. You do know that when you read about Jezebel in the Old Testament, that Jezebel's children were killed. And judged. You think of uh, in the New Testament, you know, the fear that uh, the Lord wanted to bring into the church. And you read in Acts chapter 5 of Ananias and Sapphira, you all know what happened to them. It's not, it's not that God was trying to deal, you know, like bullying. That's not what it was. It, it was a matter of, of, of having the church realize the seriousness of of God's plan for the church as well as the individuals. The second warning was to those who gave in to the seduction, to the lifestyle, to those who refused to turn to Christ and to separate themselves from the world. They were to suffer great great tribulation unless they repented. And that's an interesting thing because there's some people who think that that statement is, is made to say that if, if, if they don't repent, they will be going through a great tribulation or the great tribulation. That's a stretch. Because of time. The great tribulation has yet to happen. These people already have fallen into it. So there will be great tribulation. And if you think about that, you, you can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where, where Paul is talking about, about talking to a church that was that was corrupting and, and abusing the gifts of the Spirit, and they were abusing the table of communion amongst themselves. They were, they were having drinking parties rather than really concentrating on, on, on the preciousness of the gifts that God had given in the blood and the, and the bread of, uh, which represented the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And they were abusing that. 
And he said, because of this, many of you are sick. It is, it is a judgment. God has to do to awaken us sometimes of, of our not wanting to turn from some of those things. So, let's remember the words of Paul in Galatians 6 that say, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And the point is that there is always time, there is still time, not, I won't say always, because there will be a time when there won't be time, but there is still time to repent. And that is certainly part of the message given by Jesus that cannot be overlooked. There is still time to repent. The Lord Jesus does not close the book on this, on this, on this church. He leaves the book open. He says, there's time for you to turn back to me. And I want you to turn back to me. And I'll be there when you come. I will not play with you about that. I'll, I'll be there. If you come, I'll be there. Because I love you. And he hasn't forgotten about their love for others and, and, and their charity and their works and, and the things that they had done in service to the church and to God and to the kingdom. So he gives them a promise in the last few verses. Go two verses at a time here. But unto you I say, and unto the rest of Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put upon you no other burden. If you're walking with me, I'm not going to put any other burden on you. But that which you have already, hold fast till I come. Whatever it is that you're doing, hold fast, hold steadfast. Stay immovable in the things that you're doing for me until I come. Stay busy with me. Be about my business until I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. Wow, that sounds great, doesn't it? And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I receive of my Father, and I will give him the morning star. And then he gives that last statement, and he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. We saw what happens to Jezebel's children. And now Jesus is speaking of what is going to happen to his children. Those who have repented and come to him. These are the ones that have not left, or I should say have not let those false doctrines and the deep things of Satan affect their lives. But have allowed the deep things of God and the truths of God to fill their hearts and lives. Let's talk about that for a minute. A lot of times we don't realize that when we compromise with the world and we let the world corrupt our view or vision of God... That we're, we are dealing with the deep things of Satan. It may not seem deep. But it's like a person that could drown in, 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 in six inches of water. You're deceived that that stuff can't hurt you. But they're really deep. You take one more step into that abyss and, and it's, it's incredibly deep. 
Yet the Bible also speaks about being in the deep things of God. Which would you rather be? In the deep things of Satan or in the deep things of God? I would hope and pray. I mean, I'm not uh, taking a vote here. But if I were, I would think that all of us would say, I want to be in the deep things of God. Well, if you do, then you need to launch into the things of God. You need to sometimes get out of the shallow waters of your walk and get into the deep things of God, which means you're going to have to trust the Lord in those deep areas to find the, the treasure that's hidden in those deep places. Gold is not found on the surface of, of, of the ground. You have to dig for it. But the deep things of Satan starts off with little seductions and little deceptions until it just takes hold of you and down you go. Jesus tells them to hold fast, to take a good firm grip on the things of God. If we do, the Lord says that He will allow us to rule the nations in the kingdom age. Uh, Don't go power crazy, please. Don't go power crazy. Because that word that is used, the word rule, in, in the Greek is the word poimino. And that speaks of a shepherd. It speaks of shepherding the nations in the kingdom age as Jesus Christ rules and reigns on this earth. He's the one who rules and reigns. He's called us to rule with Him, but our rule is that of being a shepherd. What does it mean to be a shepherd? It implies the whole office of a shepherd. Guiding others, guarding others, feeding the flock, as well as leading it to nourishment. That's going to be our responsibility when when we come back with Jesus in the millennial kingdom. Because the world's going to still be here, and there's still going to be people here, and they need to know who Jesus Christ is. And they'll know who He is because He's going to be sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. That is what the Scriptures tell us. That is what we believe. But we're also told that He will give the morning star. Now the morning star was seen in its brightest appearance just before the dawn. What does that tell us about the time just before the dawn? We have a little, little maxim that we say sometimes. It's darkest before the dawn. It's the darkest before the dawn. It's going to get that way in the world. Sometimes we think it's as dark that way now. Which in a way is encouraging because if it's darkest before the dawn and we're in the darkest times that this world has ever been, then I could say that the morning star is going to shine pretty soon. And it's going to shine bright. Because He is the bright and morning star. And what an encouragement for those people living in the darkest of ages. Jesus Christ, the light of the world, the bright and morning star, is coming again and will pierce the darkness. We will not go through the tribulation as Jezebel's children will. We've already been promised that. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're told in Ephesians chapter 5 verses 6 through 8. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. 
For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. I mean, that's a, that's a great description of what, Je, what, what Jezebel was to Thyatira. She was the one that brought darkness. She put the veil of darkness over this church. And the Lord says, those are the sons of disobedience who follow them. He says, but don't be partakers with that. Be discerning and don't be partakers with that. For you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. So that's the promise that the Lord will give to those who will repent and follow after and continue to hold fast the things that they're doing for the Lord. I have a couple of questions here. Do you have an ear? Because Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear. I lost lost my microphone there. There we go. You have an ear? What, What has the Spirit been saying to the churches? In Ephesus, what does he say to them? Get back to your first love. Church of Smyrna, which is a church that had no, uh, uh, no condemnation whatsoever, he says, I see your trouble. Hang in there. Be faithful. Church of Pergamos, don't compromise. compromise don't compromise, because if you don't compromise, I'm going to be there. I'll be with you. And to Thyatira, he says, repent. Just turn. And keep doing good. See, they had a good thing going for them. This is not the worst of the church, even though it gets the longest letter. I mean, there's some pretty bad stuff. But who was really bad? It was the Jezebel person. That was the bad. But it did a lot of good. And here's the thing. It has taught us something. It has taught us that um, the motivation for us as believers in Jesus Christ in our church needs to be that our last works are going to be greater than our first. Not the other way around. You know, we think of ball players who play for 15, 20 years. They're not hitting the home runs at the end of, you know, the baseball players like they were when they were first, you know, out on the scene or or catching as many passes when they were, you know, much younger. You know, they're kind of going out uh, re- thinking of their past glories. In the church, we don't do that. In the church, we look for the future glories, but they're not our glories, they're the glories of the one who is alone glorious, and that's Jesus Christ. But our greater works, our works will be greater later than the ones that began. But it's only, it's only right, isn't it? When we were babes in Christ, we started little. We, as we talked about on Sunday, we progress. And we should mature. And in our maturity, our work should grow. So it's a, this is a tremendous letter in that particular sense of what it says to the church. Not just, you know, the, 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 the rebuke, not just, you know, the, the condition of the church and its corruptness. It could turn around if they would just repent and continue to do that which was right and good. So, the same applies for us. Let's do what is right. And let's do what is good. And let's give all the praise and honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ for having such mercy and such grace for each and every one of us to serve Him. 
Let's pray. Thank you, Father.